0: What is really driving success? And we found that it was all about execution and the ability to get things done. And then we peeled it back and we said, okay, well, what are the characteristics of companies that are just so much better than everybody else at getting things done? What we found is that there were these five common characteristics.
1: Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is David Dotson. David is an entrepreneur, academic, and author. After graduating from Stanford Graduate School of Business, he served as a case writer for his alma mater, and he wrote the original course material for search funds, which are investment vehicles in which investors financially support an entrepreneur's efforts to acquire and grow a privately held company. A year later, David raised his own search fund, which led to the purchase of a company in 1989. He has since invested in nearly 200 businesses. David is also a lecturer in management at his alma mater, Stanford Graduate School of Business, and his area of research includes, logically enough, given his experience, entrepreneurial acquisition, as well as management issues associated with growing enterprises, small and medium sized acquired companies, and early stage organizations. He synthesized his experiences and his research in his recent book the manager's handbook five simple steps to build a team stay focused make better decisions and crush your competition i look forward to hearing more about his experience and his insights through this conversation and now for a word from our partner codium the last year has been filled with conversations around generative ai but are you wondering how to actually get real value today from this revolutionary technology codium spelled c-o-d-e-i-u-m is an ai-powered tool that is securely personalized to your internal data, making software development teams 20% more productive and often writing over 40% of new code. This clears out time to tackle more problems and multiply your business outcomes. Join a long list of companies from startups to Fortune 500s that have chosen Codium as their internal productivity tool of choice for their software development teams. Reach out at codium.com, that's C-O-D-E-I-U-M.com. And now for a word from our partner, ASAP, and the company's founder and chief executive officer, Gustavo Sopoznik, whose mission is to build machine learning products to solve some of the world's largest and most difficult problems. Well, Gustavo, take a moment, if you
2: would, and describe ASAP's business. We have a very, very simple mission. Our mission is to end bad customer service. It doesn't just mean the relatively miserable experience that we tend to have as consumers with the enterprises. It's more broad than that. The problem of customer experience, more broadly defined, can be really thought as a three-legged stool one leg of the stool is the enterprise itself another leg of the stool is the customer and the third leg of the stool is the agent that works for the enterprise so what's remarkable about this problem is that all three legs um, i can argue perhaps successfully are, are very broken if you are an enterprise you truly dislike the idea of how much money you have to spend in this domain. So the economic problem for enterprise and how much OPEX this represents is represent, it's just staggering. For customers, we're all customers of companies, so we understand the frustration. And agents have one of the highest attrition rates of any job type in the world. All of this to say we have this very simple mission of, of ending bad customer service for all of those constituencies.
1: And now on to the interview. David, welcome to Technovation.
0: I'm really happy to be here.
1: Yeah. Well, David, I, I thought we would begin. I, I found uh, as an interesting um, insight about your background that both your father and your grandfather ran businesses, both of which met their demise uh, due to market forces beyond their control and or that they were not able to ride effectively, perhaps. But you clearly have entrepreneurship and management in your blood. Uh, but I can imagine that uh, your forefathers' trials offered important lessons as well. And I wonder if you could describe those.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, My grandfather was in the coal mining business in the Appalachia, and those coal mines were essentially put out of business by the introduction of low sulfur coal and harder coal because it it would burn hotter in the middle of the United States, basically around Wyoming. Montana. Uh, And then with my dad, my dad was in the farm equipment business, and he principally served uh, sugar beet farmers and price supports had a huge impact on the price of sugar in the United States back in the sixties and seventies, those laws changed and it sort of pulled the carpet out from underneath uh, sugar beet farmers. And so to your question, Peter, about, about what I learned from it is that oddly enough, you would have thought I would have wanted to go be a lawyer or a doctor after all that, because really both of them went from, you know, pretty substantial fortunes to pretty much nothing. But instead, it didn't quell any of my uh, desire for entrepreneurship, but it did instill in me a really strong sense that I don't really want outside forces to determine my uh, success. In both cases of my grandfather and my father, yes, I have rose-colored glasses on for my, you know, my, my relatives, but with my dad and my grandfather, you know, they were really good managers. Uh, but they couldn't, they, they couldn't withstand the headwind of these huge market forces. So as a result, when I was a CEO in five companies, I tried to avoid uh, any markets where that might exist. And then as an investor, and, and actually the numbers, the numbers close to 200 companies that I've invested in now, uh, generally speaking, we try to avoid being able to see around corners and you know, government uh, regulations and so forth that can take really good managers and destroy them.
1: Interesting indeed. I, I want to uh, talk a little bit further about the early stages of your career, uh, if I may, uh, and the pivot from case writers. Maybe you can even offer some insight as to why you chose to, uh, to focus on that initially, as well as what drew you to uh, the whole topic of search funds, which no doubt for some people listening or watching may, may, may be a bit esoteric. Talk, talk a bit about even today. Uh, talk a bit about, um, you know, that pathway from investigating a topic and then being so intrigued in it that you sure. elected to pursue it.
0: Yeah. So I went to I went to Stanford undergrad and then and got a degree in economics because it was the closest thing that I could find at Stanford to business. There wasn't a business undergrad uh, degree. And then I worked for McKinsey for a couple of years and then went back to to business school at Stanford. So that all kind of made sense. Yeah. What didn't make sense is that I became a case writer. Which is the, about the lowest paid, uh, you know, lowest prestige job you could have at, with your Stanford MBA. But here's what happened, Peter. I had met a guy named uh, Irv Grossbeck who had built a, a massive company in the communication sector, and he had come to Stanford after a couple of years at Harvard to teach. And I really, really wanted to work for him. I just thought I would learn so much. So I actually picked my job based on the person. And I remember I had different job offers out there um, and different companies that I was interviewing with. And I went into Professor Grossbeck's office and I said to him, and, and I'm not making this up Peter. This is literally what I said. And I'm sure I was trembling as I said it, but I said, uh, I called up and contacted everybody that I was in employment conversations with and took my name out of the hat because I feared, I, I thought I had to do kind of a Cortez and burn the boats. Otherwise I might not follow through And I said, I just wanna work for you. I don't care what I do. I'll wash your car, give me any assignment you want. I don't even care if you pay me. I just wanna work for you. By the way, I have no idea I would have paid the bills if he didn't pay me. And then out of the blue, as luck would have it, he said, well, uh, I just got approval to hire Stanford's first case writer because before that all our cases were uh, Harvard Business School cases written in Harvard. And so Stanford decided they wanted to write their own cases. And so I became Stanford's first case writer, not because I want to be a case writer, but because I wanted to work for uh, Irv Grossbeck. I worked for him for a year. It was a perfect platform for me to figure out what I wanted to do in the area of entrepreneurship. And by the way, Irv Grossbeck went on to co-found the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies at Stanford. So he really built the entrepreneurship program at Stanford from the ground up. There was basically nothing there when I got there. The first case I wrote was on this concept of a search fund. Search fund is, is nothing more complicated than this. You, you get a few investors who believe in you to give you a small amount of money to go out and hunt for a company to buy, and that maybe a, a, a a, the founder is retiring or for whatever reason they wanna sell their company and you buy the company and run it. And then you go back to the investors and say, okay, I found the company and this is how much it's gonna cost, would you like to invest? It's nothing more complicated than that, but it, it, it became, the, the term is is less and less called search fund and more entrepreneurship through acquisition. And there's two paths of entrepreneurship. You can start a company, which is the classic way that people think about it, or you can go buy a company and build a company. Now there, there are people who have who have bought companies that have $5 million in sales that are now the revenues are are, are measured in billions. So entrepreneurship through acquisition is a perfectly acceptable path now of entrepreneurship. And I would say that we teach a course specifically on it now at Stanford. I think probably, I mean, eight of the 10 top business schools, you know, in terms of how they're ranked, all have courses on entrepreneurship through acquisition. It's not even a concept anymore.
1: Well that that begs the question of course uh how especially given your background and the, the way you very humbly referred to uh, the role you had uh, the the fact that it was a lowly position not particularly well compensated well, how did you convince people to to make the investment in you since of course as you note it's an investment in an individual not a, not yet in a specific idea uh, what was that pathway
0: Uh it was brutal actually because I raised the the second, depending on how you're measuring, the second or the third search fund. So I'd I'd written this case on uh, the people who had written sort of the first institutional search fund. So no one had heard of it. So when I was going to someone saying, "Give me," I was raising $120,000, which was supposed to keep me afloat for two years. Now this was back a few years, but obviously you know I was living on on ramen in order to make that work. And so I would go to someone and say. I'm going to raise it from 12 people, $10,000 per person. That's $120,000. And they would look at me like I was nuts. They would Like, excuse me, I'm going to give you $10,000 to go hunt around for a job. No, thank you. Or some people would say, I like the idea. When you have a company, come back to me and show it to me. So I would say that I probably got you know at least 25 no's uh, for any yes. Fortunately, there were a few people who either... Newer Grossbeck knew the concept, felt sorry for me, and I was able to cobble together those uh, twelve people. By the way, all of them that are still alive, most of them are still alive. I'm still in contact with them. This was in 1988, so this was this was quite a while ago. Now, if you're a Stanford or Harvard or Wharton or Michigan MBA raising a search fund, you can raise it in two weeks. Because because there are there are funds that are that are raised just to invest in search funds. So it's very different now than it was back then. I tell I tell the 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 MBAs that are graduating they're raising search funds. I said you owe me a lot because I, I went <laughs> through misery uh, to play to set the path for you. And and, and interestingly enough, um, you know, by far and away, most of the people buy a company. By far and away, most of them are successful, and. On any kind of numeric measure, entrepreneurship through acquisition it has a much, much higher success rate than entrepreneurship with a startup. And I, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley. So I am right in the day-to-day of startup, startup world. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with it.
1: Yeah. And now having done especially in those early days, uh, uh, doing this multiple times over, talk a bit about your seeking process to find the the companies you would invest in. Uh, the, the established concerns that you would become an entrepreneur for and with uh, to, to then stimulate further growth?
0: Well, the the uh, the market forces are that there are a lot of people who have built good, solid companies and in great industries that need to retire. and But they're looking for two things, Peter. They're looking for a retirement and they're looking for liquidity. So if they go to their kids, let's say, and say well you want to take over you know the family business they might get to retire but they're not going to get liquidity because their kids don't have 15 million dollars to hand to them if they go to a lower market private equity firm that firm is going to say well yeah we would love to invest 51 and we'll buy 51 percent of the company but you have to stay and run it because we actually don't have anybody to run this 80 percent operation in tulsa oklahoma and so this really solves a problem for them because this, um, you know, generally their their post MBA people will come and say, "I'm going to give you both. I'm going to allow you to throw the keys over the shoulder, your shoulder so you can go to Boca and spend time with your grandkids, and we're going to pay you a fair price." That's really, really appealing to a seller. Okay, so my I, I tell you that, Peter, to to say that it's an open door to push on in terms of. Um, these uh search fund entrepreneurs looking to buy a company. The uh the mechanisms that they reach these sellers are very different now than they used to be. So back when I started, it was quite literally a typewriter in licking a stamp. Now it's uh you know, CRMs, it's AI to generate the outbound um uh, letters, it's uh you know a lot of technology is actually used in order to do these outreaches. But the characteristics that you're looking for of a company are the same. They tend to be simple businesses. A lot of what we were talking about before, Peter, at the start of the podcast about trying to avoid you know, market forces so the, you know, the wind is, is at your back instead of in your face. Those are the kind of things that, that these search fund entrepreneurs are looking for.
1: And, and consequential, maybe this speaks to the sim- the simplicity of the businesses as you reference. Uh, oftentimes, the reason why a private equity firm wants the founder to stay on for a time is they know where the bodies are buried. They understand the complexities and vagaries of the business. They understand supply chains and you know the ecosystem that they're enmeshed in, whatever that business might be. And the fact that this is a scenario where somebody's throwing the keys over their shoulder, you don't have that that uh, sort of inherited knowledge necessarily. So I suppose that's a among the reasons why the simplicity of the business needs to be uh, in place such that it's not a great, uh, it doesn't add to the complexity, uh, deleteriously, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in purchasing this business and taking it over.
0: You know, yes and no, Peter. Um, the, I mean, there can still be bodies that are buried in a closet, even in a simple business, but, in, in, unlike a private equity fund, where let's say you're located in Chicago, and we'll use my earlier example, you're buying a company in you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you're getting a quarterly report or a monthly report, the, the entrepreneur is going on site, <coughs> excuse me, Peter, the entrepreneur is going on site and they're running a company. So the, the people that are putting the money up know that you know, they're a person, so to speak, is the one running the day to day. So if there are bodies that are going to come tumbling out of the closet, you're going to know it right away. Um, but generally speaking, I I would say that the, I mean, it's less than two or 3% of the time that I'm involved in a situation where there's out and out fraud. There might be a couple of things that maybe we would have wouldn't have minded the seller telling us, but that's also part of the sale sale process. Generally speaking, these are really good people who have built great businesses, they're honest, and they actually care about, about, about the uh, legacy of their business. Um, and I, I would say that, I mean, a good half the time, the former owner is a key part of the decision-making process. They might be on the board, they're a mentor to the new CEO, uh, there's friendships that get developed. So. It's, not, it's It's kind of like the opposite of all the images we have about hedge funds and private equity and so forth. This is more like kitchen table um, dealings. And the, and because the investors are all minority investors, so when we invest out of our fund, we tend to be kind of about 15% of the capital that's raised. And then there's lots of other investors that are somewhere between kind of 5 and 25%. Um, we're we're all investing with each other over and over again. So we're not competing with each other. And it's amazing what happens when you have this kind of level of cooperation and everybody's saying, we want us to be successful, as opposed to, I want to be more successful than you. Uh, The um, IRRs or the internal rate of return in the search fund business, now we're pushing 40 years, is uh, 30% compounded IRRs. I mean, those are stunningly good numbers. Now you can't put a lot of capital work because it's small mom and pop businesses. So you can't go raise a half billion dollar fund, but the returns are extraordinarily good for both the investors and the entrepreneur. Uh, and a principal driver of it is that we're solving this problem for the seller that I described. The second is we have a really talented person the third is that the criteria for what makes a good business is is established at this point, and then the last thing is this point I was just saying, Peter, is that, is that everybody's working together uh, because we know that we're going to be in the next deal together and the next deal together, and someone who buys a company may come back to us and want to buy another company. I, I would say, and I'll just close with this, and I don't, I'm not saying this as a slogan, and I'm not saying it to because it's it, it feels good to say it. Uh, the people that I deal with. Their handshake and their word is the most valuable thing. It is not their signature. I I have done so many transactions with my sort of fellow investors that I have not even turned the first page of the document because I talked it over with them and I know they're true to their word.
2: Can you
1: talk a bit about uh, maybe a, a couple of uh, success stories? Uh, some I know that's a diverse array of businesses that you've gotten into. so it's not not as though it's all you know in a single industry, for instance, right. where you've developed a particular expertise, but rather uh, across a swath of them. Can you talk a bit about uh, maybe a couple of them just to exemplify what you've described? Sure. So
0: uh, one company for example, I, I would say about a third of our companies are software related. And what happened is that when software became easier to write, and it became, you know, the SAS model was developed and so it became more of a recurring revenue uh, business. It lent itself to the search fund model. So I would say about a third of our companies are software companies. So for example, one company that I'm on the board of, uh, they supply the software and the plumbing for uh, in-hospital pharmacies. So when you go and you have your hip surgery and you're coming out with some pain medication or some antibiotics, Uh, you'll probably fulfill that prescription at the hospital. But if you don't, I will tell you the hospital wants you to fulfill it at the hospital because it's a revenue source. So that would be an example. Um, And that's a piece of software that has to bolt onto a much larger enterprise system within a hospital. Easy to to imagine. Um, Another company, just actually while we're talking about healthcare, another company, for example, uh, if you... Well, when? because we all do it. You know when you go to a uh, a hospital or an outpatient clinic or a doctor's office, you you walk past all of this equipment that can be everything from an MRI uh, machine to a chair. Someone has to keep track of all that, where it is, where it's located, how old it is, what the main, when, when maintenance is required on it. So I'm uh, uh, an investor in a software company that that manages that for hospitals. You can see how mission-critical something like that would be for a hospital. So those those would be examples of of uh, software-related and technology-driven companies. Come down on recycles tires. They go and drive around, and they pick up used tires, and they either chop them up and put them into a landfill, which is the least attractive thing, or they recycle them and repurpose them into everything from making fuel um, and making electricity to common things that we think of with rubber products like playground equipment, you know, play, playground equipment. But also what you don't realize is inside of a tire is a lot of metal. You know, you, you know that you know, steel belted radial, we've heard that, well, there's steel in a tire. And so we'll recycle that steel up. So that would be another example. And by the way, I, I know that a lot of your listeners are interested in technology. You can imagine how important technology is for a company that is dispatching hundreds of trucks throughout the w- western part of the united states picking up literally millions of tires and figuring out what to do with those tires um, and managing a complex business like that you cannot do that without having good technology support underneath it
1: great points all and thank you for those examples yeah well, well i'd like to get into some of the lessons uh, from your your book the manager's handbook uh, you refer in the book to five skills every great leader needs to drive extraordinary results. Uh, building teams, managing your time, using advisors, sticking to your priorities, and obsessing over quality. And I thought maybe we cover uh, them one by one with a sort of a synopsis of what's intended by their but by by the idea um, by the by the skill, as well as maybe an example or two that you might provide. let's Let's begin if we can with uh, with building teams.
0: Sure. And and Peter, if I could, I just, want to, I just want to do one sort of introduction to it, which is that how I ended up doing this is I didn't set out to write a book and I didn't say, hey, these are five things. Now I'm going to approve it. It actually happened the other way around. We were looking at our investments and we assumed that market forces were really determining outcomes. And we discovered that that wasn't the case. And in fact, when we plotted and did a regression analysis of market uh, Uh, how fast the market was growing to our outcomes, it was basically a scatter plot, And that got us scratching our heads. And we said, like, what is really driving success? And we found that it was all about execution and the ability to get things done. And then we peeled it back and we said, okay, well, what are the characteristics of companies that are just so much better than everybody else at getting things done? And whether it's in the technology sector and you look at, you know, why does Apple just clobber everybody, uh, for example? what we found is that there were these five common characteristics. And then the, what the book does is the book takes each one of them and breaks it down into a set of skills. I was, I was in last week, I was in a class and Alex Rodriguez, the, you know, the old slugger, A-Rod, uh, who's who's quite an accomplished business person now. And I was talking to him after class and he said something that was extraordinary. He said, if you focus on the process, the outcomes happen. So let's go to, let, let's go to the issue of building a team. So I broke this the, the process of building a team into seven things. So one is being good at interviewing, another is good at doing exit interviews, another is good at how you, how you structure feedback. And it's all very how to. The point that uh, Alex Rodriguez was saying, and, and really the fundamental of the book is, don't worry about, I'm going to be a good team builder, because that'll that'll have you hanging out, strafing at 10,000 feet, really accomplishing nothing while your competitors run past you. Say, I'm going to focus on the process. The process of building a good team are seven things, all seven things every one of your listeners can do. I'm going to do those seven things. And at the end of the day, we're going to have an extraordinary team. And the best part about it is that most people won't do these seven things, which is why at the end of the you know, the subtitle of the book, it says, and crush your competition. It's you're crushing your competition because most of the competitors won't do those things.
1: Very interesting. And it's not so surprising that it begins with the team. Uh, very little you can do without yeah. people uh, helping you do the, do those very things. Talk a bit about managing your time, which I, I must say, just knowing a bit about your bio, and we've already gotten delved a little bit further into the many experiences you have. I wanted to talk to you about this, even besides as to how it applies to you, how you manage your what must be very uh, complex schedule, given all that you do. But certainly, of course, please talk about its application more generally, as you intended as mm-hmm. one of the five skills.
0: As I was was going through this investigative process, which took about three years, uh, at one point I was meeting with a, a friend of mine, Tom Staggs, who at the time was the COO of Disney. So he had about 200 plus thousand people reporting to him in his organization across six continents. We're having coffee outside the Stanford campus. And I walk down and I'm about three or four minutes late. And I'm thinking about all the emails I didn't get done. And my mind's racing them. And there's Tom, just calm as a cucumber, enjoying the sunshine. Um, And I said, Tom, I don't get it. I mean, you've got almost a quarter of a million people in your organization. And look at you. I'm the one who's late. And we ended up talking about the subject. And he, he did say the most important thing he does is surrounds himself with good people. But the second thing is being a really good custodian at time. And that became a thread that I started to pull on. And a friend of mine, uh, Professor Porter, Michael Porter at Harvard Business School, he, told, he said, you know, I want you to read this. And, and he and I were talking about this. And he said, we did this study of 27 high-performing CEOs. And we followed them around in 15-minute increments. If you can imagine this, Peter, getting 60,000 pieces of data. So we watched how they manage their day. And universally, they were very, very good at managing their day because, you know, Bill Gates and Joe Biden have the same number of hours in the day as you and I, even though they're running substantially larger organizations than we do, but they can't make more time. So they have to be very efficient with their time. So they get efficient with their time. The other thing that the study showed was that they didn't go to a four-day seminar and completely re-engineer their life and then attempt to completely re-engineer the lives of the people that worked for them, those, those don't work. It's like a New Year's resolution. In fact, they, they all had about four or five things that they did that they were true to that got them 80% of the way there instead of trying to get 100% of the way and failing. And then they became really, really good teachers because it's not sufficient. And by the way, this is across all five of these skill areas. It's not sufficient for the CEO or the CIO or the chief development officer to be really good at running a meeting or being really good at planning their day or being really good at interviewing. What they need to do after they master that skill is teach their organization how to be good at it. Uh, Jeff Bezos is is famous for a lot of things, but one thing he's famous for is his meetings at Amazon, which go to this issue of being a good custodian of your time. Amazon runs their meetings a certain way. By the way, Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook ran the meetings a certain way, when she was CEO of Facebook. They ran them differently, but they had some common characteristics and they made sure that all the meetings were run that way because they wanted a, 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 a high functioning organization, not just taking care of themselves. So what I did, for example, in the chapter on how to run a meeting is I looked at the people who were the very best at running meetings. I took out things that I thought, you know, what? I don't think people are ever really going to do that. I mean, that, that, that that's like a triple backflip off the high dive kind of thing. and. And then I harmonized it into a single way to run a meeting, which is the best of Jeff Bezos and the best of, you know, Alfred Sloan who ran G- General Motors way back in the day and the best of Sheryl Sandberg. So it became like a paint by numbers approach. And it's just seven simple steps. You do these seven sim- simple steps and you'll be in the top 2% of running meetings.
1: Very interesting indeed. Uh, let's let's go to the, the third of five, using advisors. Talk a bit about uh, what, what's intended there, please.
0: Yeah. Um, what I found is that is that uh, people who were high functioning, they thought about the decisions they had to make in two ways. They wanted to make them faster and they wanted to increase the odds that they made right decisions. Not that they were always right, but increase the odds. So if they normally would make decisions at 70% correct, they wanted to make decisions at 85% correct. And to do that, the easiest, simplest way to do it is to go ask someone who's already seen that problem multiple times who brings two things to the, uh, to the equation. One is objectivity. A lot of times we have trouble seeing the right answer because we're, we, we're we're carrying our own biases. So that's objectivity. The second is pattern recognition. So someone who's seen this problem multiple times before, not the exact problem, but problems that are similar to it. And, and the way our brains work is our, our brains are... are incredible pattern recognition machines. And that's why you might call someone up. And let's say you're calling up someone who's 15 years older than you. And you say, God, I mean, I've been working on this problem. And you describe the problem. And they go, well, this is what you should do, Peter. And you're like, oh, I feel kind of stupid. Like, it. No, the, the reason why they were able to fast forward to the right decision is they were bringing objectivity and pattern recognition. OK, but how do you do that? So you know, a theme throughout the whole book is not just the concept, but how do you do it? So. For example, there's a chapter on how do you ask someone for advice, and you don't get on the phone for 30 minutes and talk to them for 27 minutes and give them all sorts of background, and a lot of unnecessary information, and say, and therefore, here's the question that I have for you, and then they've got three or four minutes to answer the question. Instead, you start with by saying, here's the problem I'm trying to solve or the opportunity I'm trying to take advantage of. Next step is, I'm going to give you the minimum amount of information that I think you need in order to help me with this problem. Because generally the person doesn't need as much background information as you think. The next thing is you say, is there anything I can do to sort of clarify what I just described to you? So you ask for clarifying questions. And then the next thing is you shut up and you listen. And you don't feel that you resist the urge to res- to respond to everything that they say. Because now your, your pen should be like, Scratching all over you know notes after notes after notes, because what you want to do is you want to be a sponge, and then at the end, you summarize what you thought they said to make sure you get it now, those steps might feel very rote, but they're not they're very they're completely conversational, but when somebody does that. They get three hours of information in a half an hour instead of what a lot of people do, which is they just kind of they want company and they want to describe the problem, the predicament that they're at, but, but but they get, you know, let's say 15 minutes of advice in a half an hour. The the best performing people handle things that way. Okay, so so that's how you would call a mentor. We talk about how to run a board meeting, we talk about how to how to find and use an executive coach. So it ticks through all those things. Again, it goes back to the A-Rod Alex Rodriguez thing, which is that if you do these four or five things, you will be really, really good at seeking and taking advice.
1: Very uh, uh, keen insights there. And it's so the, the, the vast importance of learning from people who have uh greater experience than you and also a lack of bias, as you point out as well. Thank you so much for sharing some of those uh the the fourth of, of five skills is sticking to your priorities uh talk a bit about that and i i i need to note of course uh or reemphasize that focus is a, a, a you know, clarifying part of the subtitle of your book five simple steps to yeah. build a team stay focused make better decisions and crush your competition uh clearly this is part of that focus part uh, talk a bit about the the necessity uh, that you're describing there
0: yeah exactly so it's so it's actually setting and adhering to priorities the first part is, you know, it's one thing to adhere to your priorities, but you have to make sure you, you set the correct ones. So we go through a process, uh, and we describe the processes that the best people use to say, this is what we should be working on. Um, and then we go through simple steps that you use to make sure that you don't vary from that. Now, the, the, the champion of focus was Steve Jobs. And you think about how diverse Apple was. Uh, if any company and any management team was going to be pulled in all sorts of different directions, it would have been Apple. And Johnny Ive, who was the uh, chief designer at Apple for many, many years until he just recently retired, um, he said that that Steve Jobs was the most focused individual that he ever met. And I'm friends with a, a longtime Apple board member, and she, Andrea Jung, and she has said exactly the same thing. She said he was maniacal about his focus. And Johnny Ive said that he would... Seat Jobs would go around and he'd say, what have you said no to today? What have you said no to today? Because as uh, Johnny would say, focus is not about doing the things you're not supposed to do. It's about doing the things that you want to do in your heart, you know, are great ideas because you're working on something else. So that's the concept. How you actually go about it can be tough because the force is pulling you away. The shiny objects and the dumpster fires that are pulling you away from what you should be working on are fierce. So you have to have guardrails in place both for you and for your organization to make sure that you that not only do the, do the priorities don't shift from day to day, because look, the, the leader can drive home at night and come up with some great idea and forget the fact that in order to implement that, everybody has to stop what they're working on and now work on the idea of the day. So it's about disciplining the leadership as well as disciplining the organization but it is amazing peter what organizations can do when they are focused and when they work on a single thing and uh, as i said before we have about uh, about a, a third of our investments are in software but basically 100 of our investments have some technology component to it there's some enabling technology behind it and um i would say that the single biggest problem in the in the tech world is a lack of focus because the development team will go work on this and go work on that or go work on this idea or have this thought. And the reason why Apple, for example, will just stick with Apple was able to get products out the door that were the, every, that were better than everybody else is because they had that maniacal focus.
1: Again, great examples. Thank you for sharing. And then the last one's obsessing over quality and you know, talk about another Apple characteristic among others, yeah. uh, other superior product. Uh, product designed you know, organizations um, talk a bit about uh, some of the the methods used in order to uh, to to realize what 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 you've intended with this uh, skill.
0: It starts by defining why what quality is, and quality is about making more money. To be totally commercial, if you have higher quality, you can charge more. You lo- you you have higher customer retention, and you have lower customer acquisition cost. The best people want to work for you. Um, and um, you don't lose people to the competitors. So there's a whole lot of profitability reasons why you should be focused on quality. The second concept, which, by the way, is distinct from it being uh, something that's righteous, okay? It's not. And the reason why that mindset is so important is it frames the next piece of it, which is that quality is not about adding every feature you could imagine into the product. It's about identifying what your particular customer cares most about and nailing that and not diluting your efforts or dilu- or, or, or increasing the cost by adding features that don't matter to the customers. So let's, let, 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 let's put it in kind of a, uh, a tech framework. Intuit, which has dominated tax accounting and filling out your tax forms and accounting for literally decades. Um, and by the way, I'm on the board of a, of a competitor of Intuit. I will tell you that the software behind a tax form is really, really simple. Okay. It, it, but in, and yet Intuit has, and, and accounting was invented in the fifth, in, in I think the, the year 500, truly. Okay. And, and yet they dominated these sectors and no one has knocked them off the pedestal. The reason is that uh, Cook, the CEO of, of Intuit, And the whole culture of the organization has a concept called follow them home. They do not let the technology lead the decision-making or or, or technology drive the product. What they do is they watch people use their product, and then they find where, 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 where applicable technology to solve the problems that they see their customers are having, and that's it. So Intuit clobbers everybody because they know more about what the end users care about than anybody else. Um, and so that—that's the concept of, of of defining quality, which is um, figure having having programs like follow them home in order to define what quality is. I, another, let's 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 go very very prosaic now. Safe light auto glass, right? I mean, it doesn't get any more basic than they replace a chip windshield, right? Um, they've been really masterful at using technology to do it, but but it's always again because uh, he's passed away. Then, but the then CEO of, of, of uh, Safelight Autoglass had a concept called verbatim, which is he, he wanted to have conversations with customers. He didn't want to do an NPS score and a one to five and all that, which sort of gives everybody a pat on the back, but you don't really learn anything. So he sent out uh, the Safelight Autoglass people to watch like, like Intuit does, to watch the customers, ask them questions, have conversation with them. One of the things he discovered is that the customers like to see where their technician is similar to what you would see on your uh, Uber or your Lyft app. Now, you're not going to get that from an NPS survey. And then they used technology to solve that problem for their customers, um, which they really appreciated. Another is, and I don't remember off the top of my head, but, the, but, I'll, but I'll get, I'll be roughly right. There was something like 25 steps on their app to book an appointment. And when they watched customers, they realized that, they were losing customers, and that was inconvenient to customers, and they dropped it down to something like seven. The numbers aren't exact, but the magnitude, I'm I'm correct on the magnitude. Um, And and so it's thinking about quality in that sense. And so that that part of the chapter defines quality and then shows you how you measure quality in very simple ways, and then how you build quality into your product in a way to loop back to what we said before at the start, Peter, which was how to make more money. That's what that, that's why Intuit dominates the market. They make more money than everybody else because they're taking really good care of their customers.
1: Yeah, again, again, really interesting examples and and uh, highlighting the the necessity, but also the rewards of of doing this. I, I also uh, find it interesting your point uh, a point you raise is the necessity of focusing on all five skills together. That there's a tendency at times for leaders to maybe focus on the ones that they're best at or that they they enjoy the most, but you you highlight. Uh, the fact that these are spokes of the same wheel and they ne- need to work together. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, a bit about that?
0: Yeah, I love that. I've never heard it uh, worded that way about spokes of the same wheel. And I'm going to use that, Peter, because that's a that's a brilliant way to describe it. But the, the the origin of it was that I had finished the book and I had uh, so then I went and wrote the introduction. And a thought leader of mine, or a thought partner of mine, I'm sorry, was Professor Michael Porter at Harvard Business School, who, who basically the father of strategy. There's no one who's written more books, business books, than Michael Porter. And I handed him the introduction. I said, Would you take a look at it on which thing? He read it through, doing all sorts of handwriting on the side. And then he looks up at me and he goes, You have it all wrong. Like, oh, dang. I was thinking I had to rewrite the whole book. But that wasn't his point. He said, you're positioning this as if it's a menu of 22 things that people can pick and choose from. And if you do that, first of all, people will just pick the easy things. Secondly, is that they integrate together spokes on the wheel. Like you said, Peter, and he described, for example, you can't set and adhere to priorities if you don't have really good people. So you have to have a good team. You also can't do that if you can't run a good meeting. So you need to be able to run a good meeting. Um, if people aren't managing their time well, they're not going to be able to achieve these priorities. So he went through, he actually gave me three specific examples of where the things came together. And he said, so what you created is, these are his words, a unifying theory of execution, but you've got to do it all. Now you could say, let's say I'm listening to the podcast. I'm like, oh crap. I thought I could only just, I, I thought I'd get away with just doing the easy stuff. Here's the here's the real you know, prize at the end, is that most people will do exactly that. Most of your competitors will do exactly that. They'll, they'll read my book, they'll look at the 22 things, and they'll say, well, these seven things are pretty easy, I'm going to do them. If you do the 22 things, you will annihilate your competition in the way that Sam Walton went into the discount department store long after Walgreens and Sears and JCPenney and so forth and completely dominated them. Um, You will dominate them the way JetBlue came in and took over the airline industry after, you know, when it was really became a, you know, a full fledged industry in the 1940s. I could go on and on or Apple. I mean, you you know, you know, you think about or actually enough about Apple, but but whether it's smartwatches or whatever, it's true. Let's let's take Amazon. So Jeff Bezos certainly didn't invent um, selling things online. He did not develop the, the technology and the plumbing to sell things online. That was about a dozen years earlier. But here's the, here's the real great thing. He didn't even start selling books online. That was started about three years before by a company called Bookstacks Unlimited. What Jeff Bezos did is he came in, he out implemented everybody. And by the way, if you're like, ah, oh, okay, but you know, he was still kind of on the early stage. Uh, all the other main retailers, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble, Walden Books, whatever, in and started selling books online within two years of Amazon's start. They had lower cost of goods sold, they had brand name recognition, they had distribution networks, they had the relationships with their publishers, and Amazon annihilated them. We know that. They did it because, not because Jeff Bezos invented anything, he just consistently out implemented them over and over and over again. So that, that that's Michael Porter's point is that's the beauty of it. If you do these 22 things, then you really can create something extraordinary.
1: You've also been, uh, as one thinks about execution and the, the, uh, the, the work across teams and, and collaboration and so on, you've been outspoken about the downside of hybrid or virtual work. Um, you wrote, many of the old guardrails protecting us from mediocre management have been removed. It's harder to create a personal bond with your employees. They don't know each other as well. And there are fewer natural formats for ideation and creativity. Um, this, I know, is a is a is uh, an issue that so many leaders are grappling with. And many are finding uh, suboptimal uh, uh, means of rectifying this, especially those who during the time of of uh, the pandemic allowed people to spread like seeds across the landscape and therefore the, even getting people together becomes that much more challenging yeah. if that's the primary intent. Talk a bit about some of your insights now, having studied many businesses and the various ways in which they collaborate.
0: Yeah, so so uh, hybrid in many industries is here to stay. Yeah. And I think what we learned is you don't need to be in the office five days a week, but what we're going to learn is you do need to be in the office some days a week and that's the balance. While we're getting there, and you know, I think a lot of companies have sort of figured out that we want everybody around together two or three days out of the week, but there are advantages to being at home with the door shut, getting work done. But what it has meant is that the things that sort of protected you from sloppy management, and sorry to use the term, but I, I can't think of a, a more accurate term, uh, are gone now. Let's let's say, Peter, that you worked for me and I gave you some feedback and I didn't give you feedback in a very precise way and maybe I didn't handle it well and it was a feedback sandwich and it was ambiguous. I'm still going to see you three more times today and I'm going to see you seven times tomorrow and I'm going to see your work product and so forth. So there's some ability to recover from giving you feedback in a way that was not as uh, effective as it could be. When I'm on Zoom with you for 15 minutes and I give you poor feedback and you click off and now you're going to go talk to your spouse or you and I are not going to have a a meaningful personal interaction for maybe a week or so. The damage that I did or the lost opportunity that I did in that feedback is profound. Give you another example. Um, In terms of retaining employees and that's where exit interviews, 360 reviews and also giving good feedback good onboarding all come to play. These are part of the seven things about building a team. When people are working for you in their pajamas on, and they are out to bid every day on LinkedIn, that's a very threatening workplace. The primary reason that people used to, in the past, would, would, would remain with a company are the, are the interpersonal um, relationships that they had. People that they went out with after work, the people that they cared about, the people they said, "Hey, had your kid doing the soccer game yesterday?" Those kind of relationships. We don't have those same type of relationships now. Which means that if you don't have a good compensation plan, if you're not uh, just to go back to feedback, I and mean, people people like good feedback. If you're not giving good feedback, if you haven't onboarded people well, you are leaving yourself massively vulnerable. To getting to having your employees poached. So it's very, very hard to keep an to, to keep a team in this environment. Now let's flip it around. So I've been saying all the stuff that's that, that hurts you. Go back to the crusher competition. Most people aren't going to do that. So if you say, okay, we live in a virtual environment where all those competitor all those competitors employees are there for the taking. If I run my organization well in a virtual environment, um, I'm going to be able to pick those guys off one after another where it was much harder to before because of these personal relationships so use it for offense don't use it don't i mean i mean there's a defensive element to it but use it for offense is what i say
1: well david Dotson, thank you so much for a, a phenomenal conversation reflective of of the many things that you that you, you were involved in and then we've only scratched the surface on the various things that you've been involved in but it's been wonderful both through the book but also through this conversation to have a synthesis of the many things you've learned from that vast experience Uh, and appreciate you sharing some of those insights with me today.
0: Thanks. I I really enjoyed the conversation. I can't believe how fast it
1: went. (laughs) Me neither. Thank you again.